I recently read an article in the New York Times entitled, Why is Asking for Help So Difficult? And the piece opens with the general acknowledgement that we live in a society that's largely based on helping yourself. So this naturally defaults us to avoid asking for help. But the author gets more specific in the article. Why is asking for help so difficult? She argues that the primary reason is that we don't want to seem weak, needy, or incompetent. Why do we have a hard time asking for help? We don't want to appear weak, needy, or incompetent. And I think she's right. We live in a culture that celebrates strength and competence, and it alienates weakness and incompetence. It's a, it's a part of our cultural rhythm. It's a part of our cultural liturgy. And we begin discipling our kids like this early in life. Have you ever heard someone say to a little boy, stop crying? You ever heard that? Yes, here's the translation. You can't be weak. You're not allowed to be weak. Or in its more ugly variation, stop acting like a girl. I love that subversive campaign that says act like a girl. <laughs> the, the subtext of don't act like a girl is, is trying to place girls in a place of weakness and you don't want to be weak like that, so don't do that. It's an ugly feature of our culture, our, our revulsion. We are repelled by weakness. We don't want to be weak. We stigmatize people who are, quote, looking for a handout. Here's the translation. It's a shame to be needy. Don't be like that. And this line of thinking has become a part of our spirituality too. In my 14 years of local church ministry, I have seen many scenarios in which an ordinary problem becomes a crisis because someone does not want to appear weak or needy. They choose to try and help themselves, and that never works, and then it turns into a crisis. I've seen many marriages that are in crisis, and it goes to catastrophe because they don't want to appear weak or incompetent. Newsflash, even though we project strength, competence, and weakness, we all feel the need to project that to the world. I'm competent. I know what I'm doing. I'm not weak. I can handle my business. Even though we project that, here's the newsflash. We are all far more acquainted with weakness and incompetence than we want to admit. How many of you husbands feel like you're killing the game? You know exactly what you're doing. Exhibit A. Exhibit B. How many of you parents think you got this thing sewed up? It's all figured out. I know exactly what I'm doing as a parent. No, most of the time, this is what parenting's like. Hanging on for dear life, white knuckle. I don't know what I'm doing. How many of you are in a job scenario right now where you're kind of out of your depth, but you're trying to hang in until you figure the thing out? Y'all see what I'm saying? We are very acquainted with weakness and incompetence. And the, the struggle with this mentality slipping into our spirituality is that we, 
we find ourselves with, in a difficult situation when it comes time to asking help from other people, but even more, in coming to the, the Lord. Here's the reality. We all have weakness. We all have incompetence. But here's the primary question. What do you do with it? What do you do with it? Where do you take it? I think that the writer of Hebrews in this text for today shows us that we have a representative in weakness, and then the rest of the argument he goes on to show that we also have a responsibility in witness. There's a relationship between having a representative in our weakness and having a responsibility in witness. Now, there's some tough, sticky parts of this passage, but I think that what's really going on is that these folks need to dial in to revisit. They need to come back to the fact that they have a representative in their weakness, and when they are in touch with that and they begin to come to God in their weakness, then he will transform them into those who take responsibility for witness, for bearing testimony to the world that Jesus is Lord. So let's look at our first point where we see that we have a representative in weakness. If you weren't with us last week, we covered the, the section directly preceding our text for today. And in that section, what, what the writer of this sermon does is he talks to the church and he tells the church that they are the new wilderness community. He uses old ancient Israel as a picture. He says, Israel, you remember when they were wandering through the wilderness? They were on their way to Canaan. They were on their way to the promised land. If you're familiar with African-American history, it's in a lot of the spirituals that were sung, that idea of getting out of bondage, slavery, and getting to freedom, Canaan, that, that notion. Well, in between Egypt, slavery, and Canaan, promised land, there was a wandering through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, what happened was that the people became hard of heart, unresponsive to God. They were on the verge of the promised land. And they fell in unbelief. An entire generation did not make it into the promised land because of their hardness of heart, their unbelief, their waywardness of heart. And so the sermon calls out to them, enter into the rest of God. How do you do that? You have to curate your heart. You have to pay attention to what you let into your heart. And you have to pay attention to what you ought to keep out of your heart. You have to curate the loves of your heart so that your loves take the right kind of order, Augustine. What, what is most lovely, God, should be at the top of your loves and in a descending order, everything else in your life. You must curate your heart. It was hardness of heart, an evil, unbelieving heart that kept the old wilderness community from entering into the promised land. And at the end of our passage for last week, we were left with a very sobering word, a little sobering message. And that message was this, if you look at the end of that section, the word of God is said to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says, you have a heart problem. You're, you're, you're on the verge of entering into a hardness of heart. But here's the rub. The word of God pierces through all of the externals that you put up. It gets through and it discerns the intentions of the heart. And everyone is laid bare before the God who is our judge. That's the sobering word. You are found in a place of weakness right now because of your hardness of heart. And you have to be 
aware of the fact that God, his word, judges not just the external performance, but judges the intentions and the situation of the hearts. Now, you can imagine how sobering that is. I think that, I think that a lot of people are fond, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. A lot of people are fond of saying, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. As if that's a more comforting idea. I would rather be judged by you than be judged by the God who sees the intentions of my heart. It's a sobering thing. But in our passage for today, look at the pivot in the sermon. The people are are given this sobering word that God judges the heart. But that's not the final word. That's not the final word. He moves in to begin his discussion of Jesus as our high priest. There is hope for us to find comfort even in our weakness, to find hope even in our weakness in God himself. That's what we see in this text. Look at at how the sermon pivots in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here it is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Result, let us then with confidence. Somebody say confidence. Say it confidently. Confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. For what? Here's why that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is one of the most powerful and beautiful distinctives of the Christian faith. This notion that we have a God who sympathizes with us in our weakness who knows from the inside what it feels like to be burdened with cares, to have many priorities and pressures in our lives, to have many overwhelming things going on in our experience. And yet, he is able to sympathize with us. How many people do you know who they've, they've had a similar experience to you and they say, yeah, I've been through that. Stop bellyaching. It's not that bad. Have you ever had that experience with someone who who said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you've gone through, and it's not that bad. The beauty of this is Jesus goes through the same experience that we do. He doesn't fall into the errors that we do, and as a result, he's able to provide and willing to provide comfort to us. This is an invitation to come to the throne of grace. Now, it's called a throne of grace because the God who sits on that throne is the God of grace, who makes promises all of grace, who saves by grace, who renews by grace. It is a throne of grace. And so the invitation to come and find mercy, come to the throne of grace, find mercy and help in your time of need is an invitation to one of the most transforming disciplines of the Christian life, prayer prayer. We are invited to bring our weakness to God in prayer. We're invited to bring our weakness to God in prayer, knowing that God does not despise us for our weaknesses. 
Now, I know that when you go and you try to get a job and you're trying to get new employment, you, your, your boss does not want to hear about your weaknesses, really. They want your strengths. They don't want you to bring your weaknesses to the table. They want you to bring your A game. They want you to bring your maximum. They're willing to work you to the bone until you get your maximum performance. And guess what? That experience that we have with employers and people in this world who want us to bring our best, we bring that into our view of how God is, don't we? We think that God only wants us to bring our A game. And that's why we are so performance-oriented in our spirituality. That's so, that so many people's uh, mentality when they think about God. Like God, God is sitting there with his arms folded, and he's, and he's kind of shaking his head. He's kind of like the coach on the, on, the, on the sideline who throws his hat down and kicks the dirt when you make a mistake. That's most people's view of God because they don't believe that God wants us to bring our weakness. They think that God only wants us to bring our A-game, our strength. But what we're going to see in this passage is that God wants us to bring our weaknesses to him in prayer. Bring it. He already knows it. But when you come and bring your weakness to him, there's something profound that happens in that. And we see it in the text. It's a, it's a quick connection that I want, I want you to see. Verse 7 of chapter 5. Look at 5, 7 and following. Look at this. Look at what the, the writer of this sermon is doing. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What, what does that sound like to you? The writer is describing Jesus' weakness. <laughs> Do you see that? He's showing us Jesus in his weakness. And what does Jesus do with his weakness? This is not the weakness of sin or evil. This is the weakness of human frailty. To be human is to be in a state of weakness. What does Jesus do with his weakness? He brings it to the Father. Do you know why Jesus did that? One, because Jesus knew what it was like to be truly human. To be truly human is to be a person who owns weakness and brings weakness to God the Father. But not only this, Jesus is showing you that you can be loved in your weakness. The Father loved the Son in eternity when he was in all of his glory. And the Father loved the Son in his humanity when he was in his weakness. The love of God does not waver based upon your strength or your weakness, your competence or your incompetence. You are loved in your weakness. And look at what else we see in this text. Jesus, by his example, is inviting us to bring our weakness to God in prayer. And look at the result for Jesus. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect. <laughs> Jesus had the experience of weakness. He brings his weakness to God the Father. God the Father hears him in his cries, in his prayers, and delivers him. God the Father redeems the weakness of Jesus, and the redeemed weakness of Jesus turns into redemption for the people around him. Do you see that? 
That's where this text is going. It's inviting us to know Christ. If you're in union with Christ, this can be your story as well. You can come to the Father in your weakness, and he will do a redemptive work through your weakness to bear witness to the people around you. In a cultural current where everyone feels the pressure to be amazing, in a cultural context where everyone values and prizes strength and competence, one of the most powerful witnesses that the church can have is to be a weak people that brings weakness to the Father in order to receive the ministry of God in the midst of our weakness. Because for all of the projection of strength and competence out there, how many people in their minds are plagued by their weakness and don't know what to do with it? Who take their weakness somewhere else, or they try to hide their weakness, or they, they're, they're ashamed of their weakness, so they try to cover it, they try to skirt it, they try to avoid it, they try to get rid of it. The Christian community has a beautiful invitation. Come to the God of heaven. He does not despise the weak. He doesn't cast off the weak. He invites the weak to come to him so that he can redeem their weakness, so he can put their weakness to use in witness. And that's what brings us to our second point. We should be encouraged by what we see in this text regarding Jesus. Do you realize this before I hit the second point? There's something beautiful and Trinitarian going on here, all right? We're being invited in to see the dynamics of the love within the triune Godhead, the Father's love for the Son that does not waver even when he enters into humiliation and weakness. And this is the union we've been brought into. That we, how do you think you come to know Jesus? How do you, Leslie Newbigin said this, if, if you want to know a God who took on weakness, then you must embrace the reality of your weakness. That's one of the ways that you come to know him. You come to know God not just through your victories, but through your weakness and his fellowship with you and your weakness, his presence with you and your weakness. We say this all the time. It's a trope in the black church. You won't have a testimony until you've been through the test and you see that God is faithful. You need to embrace, own, acknowledge your weakness. But then don't try to self-help thing. Bring your weakness to God. Acknowledge it. Stop trying to project competence all the time. Stop trying to impress people with how great you are. Because you know what? When you do that, you're inadvertently subverting the mission. <laughs> you are sending the message that God only wants people who have cleaned up their act. God only wants the winners. God only wants the best. And the reality is that everything in the story of God says otherwise. <laughs> he did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick. Whenever you are, you are just overwhelmed by your weakness or your insufficiency or your incompetence, you have to preach the gospel to yourself. You are exactly the type that Jesus came for. He did not come for those who thought they had it all together. He did not come for those who were impressed with themselves. 
He did not come for those who were projecting their competence, even their competence in religious things. Those are the people he wanted to put in touch with the real evil of their souls. And you know what he did for those who knew that they were so broken within? Who called out, son of David, have mercy on me. He drew near. He communed with them. Jesus was the type of savior who was found partying with those who were down and out. He was with the people who knew they were a mess, who knew they were weak, who knew they couldn't fix themselves. That's why he was called a glutton and a drunkard by the religious people. Because he partied with the broken people and he celebrated with them because they had found him and he had found them. The good news of, of God's grace is that the God who existed in all glory and in all strength and power, the God who's depicted at the end of the book of Revelation, glory and honor and strength and power belongs to our God. That's what he always experienced from eternity past. The good news is that the God who existed in all strength took on weakness so that he could minister to those who are weak and raise them up ultimately in glory and power. So that he could come to the corruptible and raise them incorruptible. So that he could come to the tempted and the tried and bring them to a new hope. This is the gospel. You are saved by the weakness of another. So you don't need to hide yours. You are free. Bring your weakness to God. And when you do, you will see God redeem your weakness. He will redeem your weakness. He will put it to use and it will result in witness. Our second point, briefly. We have a responsibility in witness. When you have been ministered to by God in your weakness, you have a story to tell. That's what witness is. It is Telling about what you have seen and heard. It is sharing your experience with the God of heaven, with the Savior. It is not being shy about all that God has done in your life. I think one of the reasons why we're so hesitant in it is because we're, we're, we're not thinking rightly about what witness is. Witness is the astonishing story of someone who says, I can't believe I've been loved like this. And you can be too. I can't believe I've been rescued like this. And you can be too. I can't believe I've been accepted like this. And you can be too. It is an invitation to a party. It's an invitation into the greatest love. This is the big deal going on in the text. This is a group of people that has been put into a place of fear, insecurity, and disorientation because of the surrounding culture. The surrounding culture is telling them that they are out of step with the cultural orthodoxy. This is the way you ought to think. This is the way you ought to live. This is the way you ought to behave. And Christians are out of step with this, so we're going to punish you for it. So they're, they're recoiling. From the very people that they're supposed to be serving. They're withdrawing from the very people that they're supposed to be loving. And it's because they have not yet learned to bring their weakness to God. 
When you bring your weakness to God, you are emboldened. You have nothing to fear. When you know that this is a God who loves people in their weakness, well, what do you have to be afraid of? This is a God who protects the vulnerable. What, what do you have to be afraid of? Their experience of the comforts and the mercies of Jesus, their knowledge that God is now available in prayer, that you can approach God, this is supposed to energize witness. This is supposed to enliven them. This is the message they're supposed to take. And this is supposed to be a demonstration of what true maturity is. Do you know what everything going on in chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12 is all about? There's this dialogue that's going on. It's about maturity and immaturity. And here's the deal. This is what's happening. The writer of this sermon is using irony. He's writing to a group of people who are mature, but what they know is not matching up with what they're doing. They know the Christian faith. They know theology. They know doctrine. But they're not acting like it. Their, their ethics do not match up to their, their theological knowledge. And so he's chiding them through irony and sarcasm. He's saying, you need milk, not meat. You're acting like babies. You know why I get the notion of witness? In this text, he says, by now, you ought to be teachers. He doesn't mean formally so like I am. He's saying you ought to be people who are spreading a knowledge of the Christian faith to the people around you. But you're withdrawing. Your witness has been blunted. And here's the deal. God redeemed you so that you would bear fruit. And he's preaching this to the visible church. He's preaching this to a church. Now here's the deal. The gathered church is the covenant community. And this notion of curses and blessing is covenantal language. The message is going out so that everyone will be sober-minded and take stock. They have heard the gospel preached. They have seen the Lord at work. They have had experiences in their community. They have seen miraculous things. And what he's saying is if you have seen all of this work of God, you have seen God do all of this, you have heard of the glories of Christ, you have heard the gospel preached, if after experiencing all of this, you reject it, there is no other place for you to take your weakness. There is no other place for you to find redemption. There is no other place for you to find the kind of hope that your soul really longs for. If you neglect the true foundation, if you cast it off, where else will you go? That is the essence of what is being communicated in this passage. You're supposed to be a, the kind of community that is living in this communion with God, knowing that he ministers to the weak and taking that message to the people around you. Don't, don't stop short of this. Allow your way of life to match what you know to be true about our faith. Come to Jesus with your weakness. Gain assurance that he cares for you 
that he's for you. And then go to a world that is floundering in its weakness and testify that this is a God who helps the helpless. He is a God who redeems the weak. His sufficiency covers our insufficiency. And I'm going to leave you with this application that I hope frees you from the busyness of trying to project strength and competence. Have you ever considered the possibility that your weakness will be the greatest tool that God uses in blessing the people around you? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that maybe it's your weaknesses and not your strengths that God is going to use most profoundly for witness, for care? Maybe it's your weaknesses that God's going to use rather than your strengths in order to bring someone else out of their hiding, to bring someone else into the freedom of knowing that they are loved for Jesus' sake and not because of their performance. Stop despising what could be the most profound instrument of God's, in God's hands relative to your interaction with the world, especially in a city like D.C., this place attracts achievers who are on the cusp of killing themselves in an effort to prove that they are strong and competent. Why don't we become an inviting community where sinners are welcomed, where the weak are welcomed, where the poor are welcomed, where we know ourselves to be refugees so we care about refugees. You see, this, this passage is good news. Let's stop pretending. Maybe that looks like this this week. Maybe you come out with the real stuff in your heart to share with someone else, to bring it before the Lord in prayer, to have someone else pray for you. Maybe this means that you need to ask someone's forgiveness because you have been faking around them projecting strength, when in reality, you're just really struggling. Maybe it means a new way of dealing with the children who are in your life. A turnaround from discipling them into a mentality that they're not allowed to be weak, that they can't reveal any brokenness. I'll give you an example. If you notice the impulse in your soul that you're ready to pounce on your kids at the very moment that they reveal any weakness or they screw things up or they, or they make mistakes, if you pounce on your kids and you, and you blast them and shame them, if you're quick to do that, maybe you're training them away from this gospel instinct to embrace your weakness and bring it before God. These are some of the changes that we might embrace. One thing's for sure, if we do, if we do, we can count on God to redeem that weakness. As surely as he redeemed the weakness of Jesus and spread a witness to the world of his redeeming love, so can he redeem your weakness to help you to bear witness to the strength of God's love for those who are not strong and not competent. He loves us in this way. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kind invitation to draw near to you. Thank you for allowing us to participate in your mission. We pray that our mission would be blessed and enriched 
as we embrace our weaknesses, as we embrace the fact that more often than not, we're weak and not strong, incompetent rather than competent. Lord, help us. Help us to believe that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so long as we cling to our own little strength, we will not really get to experience the vastness of your strength. Set us free. Give us the grace of humility. Free us from pride that forces us to try and measure up to the people around us and prove our worth. You tell us we have worth because you made us as your image and you sent your son to rescue us. Help us to believe the good news we ask in Jesus' name.